0: It's episode 90 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Dean. Today on the program is Aaron Walter, the vice president of design education at Envision and the author of the book, Designing for Emotion. We're going to discuss the power of inclusion in transforming the mechanics of design. Aaron, thanks so much for being on the program.
1: Jeff, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, you know, it's been uh it's been a few years since we had the chance to hang out, but I have such fond memories of our interactions back at the uh the Event Apart series of conferences. That was like what was that, uh eight, ten years ago, I think? It it was a while back and it was uh it was a really special experience because
1: there's sort of like a band of us traveling around the United States from location to location and uh some big things announced, uh mobile first. Um I remember Uh, ethan Marcotte giving a presentation the first presentation on uh responsive design and we had uh, front row seats
0: no i thought that was great um and you know what it always struck me uh when when hearing your talks that you had sort of a a a passion to move beyond just like conversations about like what css functions we're using now or or what are the latest visual design trends but to but to really like uh i don't know put uh, put our craft into a much larger context and and kind of dig into the meaning of our work. I always appreciated that. Well, uh,
1: thank you for that. I, you know, I'm a big fan of, um, I I love tooling. I love uh, craft and process and, you know, started my career as a painter. Um, But uh, ultimately, I, I like to look through the telescope and see how all the things are connected and what it means for the world.
0: Didn't you start your career like in fine art?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I have an MFA and a BFA in painting. And uh, somewhere along the way in graduate school, I realized I I couldn't change the world with the painting, but I might be able to change the world with the web.
0: Oh, so that was, you were already in your education when you decided like, I'm going to try to find a more, for lack of a better term, practical application for what I'm studying here.
1: Yeah. It was, it was less like a practical application. It started with how could I reach more people with my work? Hmm. Um, And I had a roommate who taught me HTML how to uh hand make image maps and uh, uh you know write a little bit of javascript um and so that that kind of uh started me off and then i just became uh more curious about that than my paintings um and what i could make i was making cd roms at the time which kind of dates mm-hmm. me but uh <laughs> you know that that was really interesting like the the coding and uh designing together
0: yeah yeah uh same. actually I kind of moved from journalism into the mm-hmm. web for that for that same sort of um that that promise of uh you know honestly distribution. I was thinking yeah. about this the other day yeah. like how um how when I started my career like how much would it cost to get one of my ideas in front of a hundred thousand people yeah right um and and what that's like today and now of course there's so many voices and so much content being published that that's harder but the cost has been reduced to essentially zero right but but back then you needed like a printing press or a television station you know yeah. um it's interesting how, how that shift happened but how do you i wonder how you manifest all of that that like putting the craft into context and stuff with your job at envision i mean it's super interesting for a software tools company to have mm-hmm. like vice president level position focused on education, you know?
1: Yeah. When I joined Envision um, back in 2016, um, this will sound really bizarre to uh, most listeners that design as a function in business, like a critical uh, uh, lever for competitive advantage, uh, that was not really an accepted, um, you know, shared Mm -hmm. understanding of how businesses work. So, If you're going to start a business, uh, you probably think, I need someone to help me with finance and marketing and sales, and I need someone to help me build some stuff, so I need engineering. And there's tooling associated with all of those disciplines. And design has historically been thought of as like, well, it's a thing we could add later. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, it's been in a not very elevated position for a long time inside of companies, but... Um, there's been a shift. There's been a significant shift over the past um you know decade plus um where c- consumer experience uh is uh pervasively seen as as a really important way to win your market. Um you know nobody's reading the 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 dummies books of uh software because software is <laughs> in our life at every turn so we're all very sophisticated and that forces design to be elevated. So I was brought into envision to help um, kind of you know, build fertile soil um, yeah. to help people understand that design as a, as a discipline inside of business is, um, is super important and it's valuable. And here are the practices and let's, let's get on the same page and have shared practices and shared understanding so we can move faster and be more effective and give more value to the business.
0: Yeah, you know that's interesting. The way that you frame it there as uh, as a sort of before and after, like, uh, also maps to this uh, roughly ten year period between the first two editions of your book, mm. right? Between when when Design for Emotion first came out, I remember that. What's that? Two thousand ten, I think it was. Two thousand eleven. Uh, two thousand eleven. Uh, yeah, yeah. It uh, and then today, right? Like two thousand and. 10, like that was right in the middle of when uh, we were building TypeKit, and mm-hmm. there was this like, you know, we're going to build enterprise uh, infrastructure level tooling for companies to, to get better at design, right? Which is, yeah. you know, uh, it, w- which is one framing for what TypeKit really was. Yep. Uh, it, it was enterprise level software that we would sell to big corporations that we'd plug into their CDNs and stuff like that. Yep, uh, At a time when they're like, what? You mean like the colors and the shapes of letters you know yeah. um, and starting that conversation that's the, the beginning of the arc of Apple distinguishing itself by the user experience against the other people in, mm-hmm. the, in like you know mobile phones and tablets and things like that uh, and you writing about emotional. Uh, in design then versus the updates that you had to do 10 years later, both in terms of, I think, our sophistication and understanding how design fits into organizations, but also in the change of world. Yeah, the world has changed so
1: much. And, um, you know, people like you and me and probably a lot of listeners uh, of the show um, have been in the game for a while, you know, seeing uh, 20 plus years of uh, an industry uh, trying to figure out craft, trying to figure out tooling, try to figure out process, trying to figure out its place in the world. Um, we really came into it. I remember those early days um, feeling super optimistic, like it was we we're trying to build a revolution, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and revolutions always have uh, a day of reckoning where those ideals of the revolution – uh, maybe they don't fully manifest as we might have hoped, and um, I think for for us in in the web industry, um, you know, SaaS and products and so forth, um, we had we had really high ideals that we we were creating the power to bring a lot of people together, and I think especially in the past, um, you know, three to four years, we've realized that the web that has the power to bring us together also has the the inverse power to tear us apart um and we're we're dealing with that right now and and life in a pandemic is amplifying that more and helping us um recognize inequities um and so writing writing designing for emotion back in 2010 it came from the spirit of the revolution of what we could make that um, let's stop just thinking about our craft as function, um, about reliability and usability, which is sort of like, if that's, if that's the top bar, uh, it's like a chef saying, let's make uh, edible food. It's a really low bar, <laughs> you know, like you, you could make something really amazing. And that's what I wanted readers. And I wanted people, uh, in, in the design industry to see is this opportunity that architects have figured out, um, industrial designers have figured out, why don't we bring this to our discipline? We, we can do that too. Um, but I think the the myopia of the first edition um, back in 2011 is that, that that top end after usable is like creating delight or pleasure. And back then the, the mantra of the world uh, in, in the design space was designed for delight. Um, but it turns out d- delight is a really narrow, piece of our life, you know. If mm. you're if you're designing Disney World, designed for delight, that's a special circumstance that probably makes a lot of sense, but right now think about um you know challenges people might have with uh healthcare, um feeling um unincluded in in the world um and looking for their place. Um think about people's uh sense of lost privacy, mistrust uh, fear about their financial stability and what it's like to log into their 401k and see a, a chart that's plummeting downward. Um, there's a full range of emotions that people bring to the products that we're designing, and if we're only designing for delight, I don't think we're we're actually living up to our potential in in the design
0: world. Interesting, yeah, because he sort of what you do in the book, which I found is, is something like we used to do also in this kind of adaptive path days, was to think about the hierarchy of needs, you know, like the traditional flame, food, water, and shelter up to belonging and self-actualization. But but in a digital sense, right, we would sort of functional, reliable, usable. And then, yeah, like we always, we, we called it desirable, um, uh, but delight or pleasure like that is you, you create an experience, a digital experience that satisfies people's needs in such a way that they leave with a positive emotion. And that was the, the kind of the pinnacle of what we were doing, mm. right? Uh, and and it is now with retro with with ten years, twenty years of hindsight, we can see like that was kind of a the, a fairly naive view of the world. Mm. That 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 getting like simply channeling people into a into a more more and more pleasurable experiences would, as you say, like leave a vast array of experiences out, and those experiences are tied to people's identities and leaves them to feel that uh, they're just not included frankly in society yeah. you know we, i think it's fair to say today that without the ability to access all of the world's digital systems you don't have the ability to function in our society anymore like we technology has become that pervasive that it is basic citizenship you know basic healthcare the mm. bottom of the hierarchy of needs really is like digital connection and and inclusiveness is required for that Absolutely. Yeah. And um, you know, I think that
1: designers uh I think it's safe to say we 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 come to our work with really good intentions of being inclusive and and bringing people uh, you know, a a better world. Like we want to we want we're in this industry because we feel like we can make something that helps other people. We like to think of ourselves as empathetic and um kind of tuned in to the people that we serve. But there's often a gap between our good intentions, and the actual outcomes. Um, and I feel like that's really what happened. Uh, we had the good intentions of uh, uh, this, you know, the early 21st century, and then realizing that the things that we made uh, didn't always deliver on that promise. Um, you know, I think platforms like Twitter, I remember, remember uh, at South by Southwest in 2007, like using that and mm. feeling like super connected to all the people who were there because of Twitter. And now it feels like, you know, um, it's doing something else as well. Um, Airbnb, which is a brilliant business, super smart, um, has really great intentions um, in uh, building a trustful, trusting experience between hosts and guests. And right. that's turned out to kind of play into uh, racism that's that's uh, pervasive in the world. Um, and so they've had to build, they've taken really thoughtful response to that and built a really cool system that they're going to open source and share with other people to, uh, to try to prevent discrimination. But I think this is something that designers need to um, reconnect with. It's not, it's not a new thing. I think it's been around for a long time, but the, the gap between our good intentions and the actual outcomes within communities um, and being able to follow up and building that into a process, what are the outcomes? How did this affect people? And do we need to recalibrate?
0: Mm, mm, yeah. So, I mean, we're recording this episode at a time, uh, in America, uh, in which, uh, there, uh, you know, there's protests like we have never seen before. Yeah. And the realization, I think for a, a much larger percentage of the American population is that the inequalities in this, that, that people are out protesting, aren't coming from the fact that there are still racist people in power but that they're coming from structural flaws in the system where Mm -hmm. that level of inequality is baked right in and intended to keep people that way yep and so one of the things that's striking me here is that you're kind of you're talking about a path towards using design as a catalyst for exposing and perhaps addressing some of those inequalities. Yeah, that's, that's the idea is,
1: um, and I'll be honest, I don't have
0: the answers to, uh, mm. you know,
1: how we necessarily get there, but I think there are some sure super smart people thinking about this stuff. Uh, you know, I mentioned the team at Airbnb and Benjamin Evans, who's over yep. there, um, uh, doing amazing work on a lot of the, the trust related things and, and thinking about discrimination Boywin Gao and Jahan Manton, um, who run a company called uh, Project Inkblot, have built a really amazing framework um, that's mentioned in the book. Design for diversity is what they call it. But it's like these four key questions that we can ask ourselves in the design process. Um, the first is about that gap, like what are your intentions and what are, what's the impact? Um, so that's, right. that's, a, that's a great starting point. Um, that the question of like what's the worst case scenario of what I'm designing and on whom yeah. who would who would receive that impact? So they've they've got a great framework that if you you know you you Google Project Inkblot, you're gonna find that. Um and that's a, a great starting point. And, and then Benjamin Evans, um, you know, I've talked to him a number of times and he has a great just like simple rule of thumb that I I appreciate. It's just like who are we not including who are we leaving out hmm. and that's a that's a question that is so good as a design question to challenge your team about your audience and and your users and try to connect that gap between intent and impact but it's also good like if you're hiring or building a team who are we leaving out right. who's not represented here because lack of representation in our teams leads to poor decisions uh poor decisions where we think we're doing something really great but we just haven't seen the problem from multiple angles um you know it it can even be like a meeting who are we leaving out of this meeting or this decision
0: um to to build a thing for a specific audience yeah wow so that kind of gets to the core of this this notion of of inclusivity and uh, and by transforming our teams, we can perhaps transform our experiences mm-hmm. uh, that our customers or our users are facing. I want to dig into that a little more, but we're going to, we're going to take a quick break um, and hear from our friends over at Stackbit who are uh, sponsoring this episode. Uh, Stackbit offers developers tools that enable inline content editing, live previews of content changes, and sharing of real-time previews. Uh, and they can do all of this uh, using Jamstack, which is uh, uh, sort of the underlying framework for their sites. Uh, all of this is, supports the tools that you're probably already using uh, or your develop- the developers you work with already use. doesn't require code changes, and that's why Stackbit is such a great way to, uh, to use all of this. That's a, uh, uh, that's a dev- it's a development architecture based on client-side JavaScript, reusable APIs, pre-built markup, uh, Stackbit lets content editors make changes and preview how they look uh, right on the page while they're doing it, so you know that their uh, changes—you uh, know how the pages are going to reflow or uh, what impacts they'll have overall on the design of the page—without needing to go through publishing and rebuilding and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, content editors can also share real-time previews of content changes, and Stackbit works with all the existing tools that you guys that you all are probably using right now, including static site generators, headless CMSs, deployment solutions. Whatever it is. So try it out. Uh, You can try Stackbit's editing and collaboration features right now on their website builder. Just go to Stackbit. That's S-T-A-C-K-B-I-T. Stackbit.com. Click the Try Now button and create a Jamstack site in just minutes built using modern tools and services. Connect it up to Gatsby, Sanity, Netlify, uh, GitHub. it, It connects to everything. Uh, Once again, create your site today in just minutes at stackbit.com. Thanks to Stackbit for their support of Presentable and all of Relay FM. All right. So, Aaron, you were talking about something that we have discussed a few times on this podcast with various other guests, which is in the, uh, let's say, the heat of battle, the rush to Mm -hmm. deadline, the middle of production, the beginning of the process when all we can think about is budgets and resources and all of that how do we pause to ask these questions what you know what are we forgetting who are we leaving out what could go wrong what are the implications of all of this uh that feels like such a difficult thing to achieve it is a
1: difficult thing to achieve and it's been a difficult thing to achieve on uh many fronts like let's pause and do some customer research um let's not ship a product that is uh only functional, but not, uh, reliable and usable and, and, uh, emotionally engaging. Like thinking about, uh, I think that the the philosophies around MVPs are very broken and, and flawed. Again, I don't have the answer of how do we slow down? I think that step one is awareness of when we rush into things and we don't have this built into our process, this framework for thinking about diverse perspectives. When we have that awareness it's easier to have the language and, and raise your hand and say, hold on a second. Here's the thing that's we're miss- that we're missing. Um, and, you know, the other thing that we have right now is a lot of bad examples of here's what the worst case scenario is. We don't want to be like that company that just launched this um, and maybe they were opportunistic or uh, just to try to plug into a thing in an insincere way. Um, Mm. maybe they totally missed the mark and didn't think about large groups that they were leaving out. Um, and it was a PR fiasco or maybe it just caused their business to miss, um, a lot of opportunity because there are a lot of human beings on the planet. And if you're only thinking about a narrow, uh, group, um, you know, your business has a lot less potential to succeed.
0: Interesting. So maybe, uh, the way I framed it just then, as how do we slow down is fundamentally flawed. Coming at it from the different perspective of um, can we afford to get it wrong is much different. And that, to be honest, like as I sit here and think about it, is the argument that we made way back at the beginning of the 21st century. That's right. When we started user experience work and, try, and, and we're out like pitching companies uh for these research methods and that's what they would say like we can't afford that like we don't have the time you want to talk to how many users you want to do what like we don't have the time And we would say just look at the end of the 90s when all those giant companies failed like they came crashing down uh, because they were just rushing to market, rushing to market, and all of that investment was squandered. How much of this investment is going to be squandered if you don 't do these things that we 're proposing right That was our sales pitch and That's so right. uh, so maybe i 've got the framing of uh, it takes too long uh, you know is completely wrong, and in fact, the negative outcomes like you were describing with examples of like we launched this without thinking. Are so severe, right? Like are so uh, expensive, both in terms of of like projects failing, but also just the the brand equity and and even things like retention of employees. You know, I don't want to work for a company that's doing stuff like this. So, so perhaps that's a a much better framing.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up retention because that's huge. I mean, we see people uh, leaving their jobs even during you know uh, an economic uh, downturn. Uh, based on principle. And we see, you know, people at Facebook uh, protesting. We see people at large organizations. Google um, has had Mm. uh, their share as well. So people are, um, you know, there are other job opportunities. Um, There's a lot of competition for talent. And companies that aren't thoughtful about this stuff, uh, it, it does... Uh, It does impact retention in a big way. But, um, you know, as you're describing this, Jeff, uh, about the argument that we've made for user experience in the past, you know, 10, 20 years, it's the same argument for accessibility. Do you remember like Mm, we totally uh, trying to get companies to think about accessibility and they'd say, ah, but we don't have any disabled users. We don't have any blind users. That was often the thing that uh, someone would say, uh, someone of influence inside of an organization And the counter-argument was always like, look at the litigation out there. And when that became a bigger risk, it started with the big Target case. Now Target has one of the most sophisticated um, accessibility processes uh, of any company that I know um, because of that. But that reframed people's minds when they realized, okay, this is problematic. Uh, Accessibility should be a thing that we build in from the beginning. Microsoft has a fantastic guide, a toolkit for thinking about inclusivity. And that is about accessibility. It's about diverse perspectives. So it's very, it's, it's inclusive and it's inclusive thinking, uh, which is really great. And they help us see that um, accessibility, for example, is not just about, um, you know, I, uh, you know, I'm sightless, uh, let's say, um, but maybe I am in a circumstance, uh, temporary circumstance, like I've, if I had cataract surgery, so it's a temporary thing, or, um, I'm un- unable to look at the screen because I've got, uh, 2% power and I've, uh, you know, dropped down the, the, the brightness of my screen. So accessibility is this thing that, that serves lots of different, um, scenarios and different groups of people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a, a that's good analogy too. I think that really maps, um. You know, getting back to that question of who you might be excluding, uh, you you made the, um, you you brought up the example of Slack uh, and in their interface and in some of their advertising, uh, without much fanfare, without uh, yeah. big proclamations or anything, simply like changing some of the subtle iconography to just have brown hands. You know, yes. we we've always had this like the skeuomorphic like w- white hand, the like. You know, and, and think about the implications for. And this is not just a couple percent of the population, like we used to have with the that that ridiculous the uh, accessibility yeah. argument. But this yeah, is yeah. like huge, huge swaths of the world's population that can't see themselves inside of the applications we use every day. Yeah. So the
1: designer behind that was uh, Diogenes Burrito, um, and he's a product designer at Slack. Um, in a nutshell, uh, Slack was launching a, a new simple marketing campaign, um, and one of the graphics uh, was, you know, the Dio was working with some illustrations that had already been created, um, and that default uh, hand that was already created was a white hand, and he decided, he said, you know, I don't want to make this a thing, but it kind of is a thing. It's like the right thing to do, and uh, he changed the color of that hand to brown, and it's not like it was hugely in the interface, and like, but it was a it was a marketing campaign that went out, and it, uh, it it has such a profound effect on people, a sense of just like being seen, of just being yeah. seen. Which, if that's not emotional design, I don't know what is. That's just as as core to being a human as as it is. That's examples in the book, but I can tell you that. There's so many other examples in the world. So I'm the father of two African-American boys. And um, I remember like putting a Band-Aid on a boo-boo, which is something that every parent does and thinking, mm. that's, a, that's a white person's Band-Aid. It's not, a, mm. it's not a black person's Band-Aid. And putting sunblock on your kid, which again is that's what parents do. And sunblock that has zinc in it makes brown skin look purple. And I remember thinking, this is white person's uh, sunblock. Now, this is, I am a very, very white person. I'm so white that white people give me a hard time about how white I am. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, there there is that perspective. But um, these are examples of things that are so pervasive in our culture that clearly they're made by white people for white people. And I don't think that those designers are, have, have, Uh, malintent. I think they just didn't think like, oh, it's flesh colored. Well, what does it mean to be flesh colored? Uh, Whose flesh is that? Who is represented here? Um, And we're designers. We're making products. We're not always representing things, uh, representing people. We're often designing interfaces. But there's so many places where a design decision can inadvertently leave people out. Um, And that's damaging. It's hurtful. It's pervasive. You know, like... um, uh, think about some a person of color, and uh, if they wanted to watch a movie with their kids, if they want to read a bedtime story with their kids, um, if you're a white person who's not thought about race that thoroughly, um, you would probably think like, "Well, this is fine. There's there's no problem here." But a person of color um, with their kid, you know, it's it's all white people um, represented. My kids, we were playing Candyland the other day, and I said, "Look." look at all of the faces on the, the game board. They're all white faces. What do you think that means? Who designed this? And my six year old said, oh, a white person designed this. And I was like, that's right, that's exactly right. Um, so what I'm, what I'm excited about in the world, um, the world's upside down right now. And um, I think we all feel a lot of stress um, and uh, we just feel a lot of heavy emotions. I know I do, that's like every day, all day. Um, but what I'm excited about is, you know, people seeing, people's eyes opening up. Just like, let's see each other, let's recognize each other, and um, let's just make space for each other. Let's let's make space for each other in our personal lives. Let's make space for each other in our professional lives. Um, let's think about who's not included, and let's just make some smart decisions. Let's make some thoughtful decisions to be inclusive.
0: That's fantastic. That really also points to uh, what you mentioned earlier about the importance of our teams being made up of people with tremendous diversity in their life experiences. So we've uh, we've been talking about a number of examples of race, but even uh, beyond that different um, uh, different ages, different genders, different, levels of privilege in their upbringing Mm -hmm. different you know different experiences with uh with wealth or poverty because it all comes to bear in these tiny decisions that happen over and over again uh, as we're developing our products
1: yeah even fundamentally like what problems are we trying to solve like do we need another way to split the check at dinner um that that problem (laughs) has been solved by so many products um and that's a that's a wealthy person person's problem if you uh, are coming from a very limited budget uh you 're probably not going out to eat and you need other fundamental um products and services to solve your problem so it's it 's not just a design problem it 's also a business problem
0: yeah 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 um we 'll get back right into that in a minute i 'm going to take a, a short break and tell a little bit about our our friends over at syncup uh who are sponsoring this episode uh syncup is a podcast uh from our friends at microsoft onedrive uh we 're always looking for new podcasts, new stuff to listen to and the wealth of stuff out there is absolutely phenomenal. Um, But if you're looking for a new show that kind of focuses on the remote or the tools that we use to help us work more effectively remotely sync up, does that. They take you behind the scenes of OneDrive so you can learn about how to connect files, share your documents, work from anywhere, and you get to hear about the design and development side of things too, like how they build it, what they're going through, what it's like inside the the, uh, the Microsoft world and and making all of this stuff. Each show covers a dedicated topic with guest interviews and news and announcements, plus a special topic outside of the technology norm. I think they talked about uh, oatmeal cookies last time in the favorite <laughs> recipes. Yeah. Um, so if you have an idea, uh, uh, and just so you have an idea of what to expect, I want to tell you about some of the topics that uh, that might be interested in uh, that were on previous episodes. Uh, they've spent a, a fair amount of time for a Microsoft podcast talking about Mac user experience and what's coming in the new operating systems for the Mac with regards to the Microsoft services and apps and things like that. Uh, they talk about changing uh, management and Practices and product adoption and customer success, and and then all of the stuff around file sharing and personal vaults and more. Um, uh, I've enjoyed a couple of these episodes; they're, they're really good. There was a, a really deep dive into how to manage your files with your team when you're working remotely. And I know for designers, uh, you know, we think of it like we've got a lot, uh, all parts of our process considered. But then there's like all the stock photography assets, and how do we how do we get fonts around, and all of that stuff. So digging in there. Really really cool stuff uh go listen to it it's uh just search for sync up that's s y n c u p uh wherever you get podcasts or look in the show notes I've got a link to it there go check it out thanks to syncup and Microsoft for their support of this show and all of relay fm uh yeah so we were we were talking about uh about not leaving people out uh i found uh an interesting uh methodology i've I've heard this a couple of times before but you you go into a little bit of detail around empathy maps why don't you talk about that a little bit Aaron
1: yeah, empathy maps are a, a, a fun and interesting tool um, where you can start to put yourself in, in the, the place of your customer and, you know, think about what they see in the world, what they hear, what they're thinking, what their pains are, what they hope to gain. And mapping that stuff starts to give you some sense of like, okay, uh, I see these behaviors, Uh, they're going here, they're doing this, but what motivates them? That's really the intention of an empathy map is to try to get, um, at the, the motivations behind behavior. I first encountered it from, uh, the game storming book, which is a fantastic book, uh, Dave Gray, SUNY Brown, I'm blanking on the third author's name, unfortunately, but uh, it's a great book and it's just a collection of of, uh, very practical, tactical design practices to help you solve problems. Um, But Empathy Maps, when you're talking to customers and um, it gets you in the habit of um, thinking from their perspective, what, what are they taking in from other places? And it can help you um, consider what questions to ask to, to get into that mental space. Um, and it's a simple practice. Uh, you basically draw a person in the middle and you divide it up. Um, if you Google empathy map, you'll find a million templates out there. And, uh, it's a yeah. really, really simple design practice.
0: It sounds like something that has to come over, some, uh, or has to come after a fair amount of qualitative research of some sort. Some right, because we can't just sit in yeah. a room and guess what people are going to be right. thinking. Right? That's yeah. a, that's an interesting. Like, it may be just as effective as a process to to work with a team to see, like, we don't know any of this. <laughs> yeah, you know, like to really uncover our gaps in understanding of who we're trying to provide uh, uh, product or services for. So that's really Absolutely. interesting. Yeah. And you can even do that qualitative research
1: remotely. I know that's a a very popular topic of conversation right now is how do we do research remotely? But um, when I used to lead uh, the design team at MailChimp, we would do um, monthly calls with uh, customers, people who had just bought or people who had just left. um, And we would listen for that emotion. Like, where did they kind of switch over? Where did the tone of their voice change? Or a four-letter word. When they drop a four-letter word in the conversation, you know that's an emotional point. Uh, so what are they seeing? What are they thinking? What are they doing? Pains and gains. And you can start to map that experience over.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. It, yeah, and, and also qualitative research remotely it's, it's interesting. I just spent the last three or four months uh, involved in a very big research project. We did about 50 hours of interviewing and, wow. um, yeah, no, it was, it was substantial. We're, we're, really trying to, so I'm doing that in the context of, uh, the, the entrepreneurial experience, the mm. founder ju- that founder journey, yep. um, uh, with a specific angle of looking at the inequalities in the world right now, when it comes to entrepreneurialism and the, the gross imbalance of where dollars go based on, again, you know, race and and gender and things like that. Sounds amazing. Uh, Oh, I'm sure I'll talk about it a lot as we get through to the end of the research here on the podcast. Uh but it was it was a really really powerful experience uh and, st- and it is. We're right in the middle of the kind of the end phase of interpreting the research. But yeah, like uh, we had a team of six or seven researchers uh and uh doing that sort of deep listening sessions with uh with a bunch of people that had been through the experience, but they did it all remotely, all over Zoom. The multi-day Sessions afterwards with the whiteboard and the uh, and the post-it notes everywhere, looking for the themes and the patterns like that all happened in a combination of a uh, Excel sheet and a and a, a product called Mural, which is really just like a yep. like a sticky note app that we could all use in real time. Like uh, it works, it works, and 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 in many ways, I felt like by being remote, we could keep momentum going even faster than trying to find times to all get together, and mm. um, and we just. I was really, really impressed with the efficacy of it all, um, and really surprised by it after so many years of assumptions about the the importance of being in the room with somebody. Yeah, so.
1: it's always great to question question your assumptions. <laughs> yes, it is,
0: especially as you get older. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let me just uh, touch on one other thing. You talk about uh, when you talk about designing for emotion. Uh, you point out that you're really designing for moments, right? There's clearly mm. an overarching, like, more inclusivity, bigger questions that we should ask mm-hmm. about the entire project and process. But then there are these moments, like uh, this wonderful example you give of, like, the Intuit doing tax returns. Mm.
1: Yeah, the the idea of a moment, uh, you know, it, it feels like, if you're designing for emotion, it feels big, nebulous, uh, pervasive of a, of, in, you know, in a product. And, um, in terms of like collaborating with engineers and product managers and product owners, if you are trying to make the pitch that emotional design should be everywhere, that's a, a tougher thing to, to collaborate on. But, um, you know, it's easier to solve a big problem if you cut it into small pieces. And, thinking about the customer journey where there's peaks and valleys, like really good times where the customer feels empowered and confident or um, good about what they're doing and with your product, and then points where it's really low and terrible. Um, if you can map that, that helps you start to think about, okay, what can we do in this moment um, to make that better? So the TurboTax example that you brought up, which is a, a very popular tax kind of do-your-own-taxes type of software. Uh, there's a question in the United States, uh, U.S. Uh, tax filing process that asks uh, if anything has changed in the past year, has anyone passed away um, in this this uh, tax filing? And uh, if you say yes, there's just a simple little message that comes on the screen that uh, acknowledges the the person who's filing their taxes. It acknowledges their loss. And... That's, it's, not a, it's not a very complicated thing. It's not a significant design decision. It's actually just a piece of copy. But what's yeah. great about it is, especially when you're designing the flow of filing your taxes, it's pretty easy to just focus on, like how can I make the forms really quick and efficient? How can I make the language short so this can be fast and you want to get out on the other side? But to just pause for a minute and think about what are the emotional implications of that that response, and how might that person be feeling? Filing your taxes is a functional, painful thing, but it also might be painful because uh, it it's a way it, it's 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 a moment where you stop and look back on the year and what happened in that year, yeah. um, and that might be really heavy. Um, and TurboTax has has uh, you know the, the the design team has gotten such profound responses from their customers. Um, who've said, you know, I, I really appreciated that you just acknowledged that loss. Um, that really meant a lot to me. Um, so that's an example of a small thing that can be done. Um, there's so many other types of moments that we can create. And there's some research that's been uh, done around where we position those moments. If that's, uh, you know, at uh, a peak or a valley or what point in the customer journey, the uh, Daniel Kahneman um, a researcher, listeners may have uh, seen him on TED or read his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. He yeah, and um, yeah. a fellow researcher did a, a big study on colonoscopies and um, discovered basically like this is a really painful, unpleasant experience. But if the last um, minute, couple minutes of the procedure um, were not painful, like if you could adjust your process to make that not painful, the remembering mind does not think of that experience as negatively. So thinking about the customer journey and that last piece of the customer journey, if that, if that can be less painful or even, you know, uh, emotionally engaging in one way or another, doesn't necessarily have to be a delight thing, could be something else. Um, that shapes the remembering self um, and the perceptions
0: of your product and brand. This might be the first time that we've used colonoscopies as a design example. Didn't so see I that one that. coming, did you? <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, but it's a, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a kind of a powerful metaphor for the, um, for that process of thinking all the way through an experience. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and just again, like when, experiences are encoded in our memories the the the, just how much more uh uh vivid they are when they are coded with emotion that's right right and and that's ultimately i mean that is a really sort of scientific and neuro way of thinking about brand that's exactly right emotional experience we have help right helps encode good feelings along with the service that we provide yeah um or some sense of empathy, or you know something like that it would. And again, back to the diversity of the team, it could have been uh, highly likely that a, a small team working on that part of the project at Intuit uh, ne- would not have somebody on the team that ever, had ever experienced a loss of a, That's right. of a loved one. Like it was a really never young would have team. occurred. Yeah, like it would have been very simple to you know, like, well, we need to collect whether or not there has been a deceased person in the past year. If so, what's the date? Okay, what's step four? You know Mm -hmm. or whatever and that's it just go right past it without like oh you know the the weight of having to type that in and having all those emotions uh surface while we're doing that Mm. so um wow Aaron, this has been a fantastic conversation um the book is design uh designing for emotion second edition uh it's available at the uh uh, book apart website i'll put a link down in the show notes i noticed that uh there was a sample chapter available there so go check it out get a sense for it where else where else can we learn more about what you're up to um you can
1: uh I encourage people to check out the design better podcast i co-host with uh eli woolery and uh, have some really oh, yeah. interesting conversations and guests uh seth godin um debbie millman john maeda uh lots of interesting folks david kelly um so check that out, um, and you could learn more at uh, AaronWalter.com.
0: Uh, and you're also Aaron, A-A-R-R-O-N, on Twitter, so they should follow you there, too.
1: That's right. My dad misspelled my name at the hospital, so I've got uh, two ways and two R's.
0: Are you serious? Oh, no. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I like it. It's distinctive. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, uh, this is great. I'll put links to all the stuff we just talked about, as well as a lot of the resources that you had mentioned while we were uh, while we were chatting. I'll put all of that in the in the show notes. Go check that out, uh, and go get a copy of this book. Aaron, thanks so much for being on the show. Jeff, it's great to catch up with you.